1: Hi, I'm Daniel Scheffler, and this is Everywhere. Today's travel commandment. Thou shalt ignore thy smartphone. As much as I rely on my smartphone for, you know, pretty much everything all the time, there are these instances where I think, I would just like to throw this device into the Hudson River and live a simple life without it. I know I'm not alone when I say this. Now let's imagine the phone-free life of a travel writer like me. First off, maybe I should check if those old-school internet cafes still operate all over the globe. Next up, imagine me schlepping bundles of printed boarding passes around. I'd actually have to hail a real yellow cab without an Uber app. So that will be something old that's new again. But how will I tell my husband we've boarded and now we're pushing back and now we're taxiing and now we're taking off. I'd have to save my hotel addresses and reservations and print them out like my great aunt used to do in this giant leather folder which she carried everywhere with her on trips. Or maybe I need a very chic, oversized lanyard with all my paperwork. Then again, I could get nicely lost on purpose with just a paper map, or even no map. Believe me, a little part of me finds all of this rather thrilling. Let's call it low-tech, high-tech. I think this all the time. Technology will save us, but not before it destroys us. When it comes to travel, my feelings are quite specific. As someone who's not on social media, and yes, you heard me correctly, no social media whatsoever. I happen to now have an everywhere podcast Instagram page, but hey, that's just work. Recently, my high school brother said to me, maybe you don't exist. And I really like that. I did social when it came out years ago. I used it, abused it, and then for about 10 years or so, I've cut it all off, cold turkey. My compulsive nature and my deep desire for real, in-the-moment, right-now experiences were simply too strong to deny, and I'm a happier human for it. Recently, I counted 20 travel writers slash bloggers slash influencers who died in 2018 from trying to capture the best image for their social channels. Nearly two dozen people died, for what exactly? Every time someone shows me their idyllic beach photo, or that picture-perfect yoga position photo on top of a camel, or another plate of over-stylized food, you know the ones, I just think, were you actually there, or were you just posing? Sometimes at a work lunch when I'm just about to tuck into my salad and I'm starving, I get told to wait as it's being photographed by a fucking influencer. What kind of life is this that every moment needs to be memorialized? I have to wonder. Luckily, I've had some practice. Spending a month in Japan with Mother showed me just how to do less phone and more life. In the now, the right now. So let me tell you about mother. I often describe her as the sweetest, smartest, funniest, happiest aunt everyone should wish for. If she was a believer of reincarnation, I'd say she was in her last life, having learned every lesson possible, having finally reached that evasive sneaky thing they call enlightenment. She wants for nothing, she judges absolutely nobody, and she lives very simply. It's beyond inspiring. But more importantly, certainly for me, is that she is the type of traveler who, after she breaks her foot on the Otter Trail in South Africa, just keeps going. She walks the remaining 20 miles without a complaint. If she wasn't so skinny, I think she would have made it big in the Mossad, Israel's special forces. She's also the type of traveler who's not interested in driving around cities in a fancy black car seeing things from behind a window. Nope. She puts on a pair of sneakers, walks every block, every nook and cranny. Plus she greets and chats to everyone she comes across. From the president of an African state I've never heard of to the Mr. Delivery guy holding her takeout. So of course Japan is perfect for her. Everyone is as polite as she is and walking all over is so much part of the culture that she fits right in. Although she towers over everyone, she graciously bows right down to chat. Traveling with mother is always the most fun any human can have. She's up for anything. Like, let's not google this at all, but go and find out where the birthplace of pearls could be. And we did. It's a little prefecture called Mie, just a few hours south of Tokyo, where only female divers were entrusted to find pearls I see how mother's eyes are filled with magic, as she learns how to use a vending machine to purchase anything imaginable. So of course we turn this into a game, something that almost every situation calls for. It started with, what is the strangest item we could get from a vending machine? I of course thought I had won when I found a vending machine with little doors revealing puppies. But mother one-upped me when she discovered live goldfish spiders, and even pet snakes. We were really not into the dirty underwear vending machines or the ones dispensing dry ice. But Mother won our competition hands down with her unearthing of a vending machine that dispenses doggy wigs. Because you know that day when you're out and about and your pup urgently needs a costume change or maybe a disguise? We didn't tweet about this or Instagram this moment. We just savored it, just for ourselves, and it was so indulgent. Well, we really got into the vending machine thing. We ate entire six-course meals under bridges in Tokyo, all from vending machines. We also managed to buy an enormous inflatable pool swan by mistake. Mother just wanted a new iPhone charger, but she was thrilled nevertheless. At some point in Kyoto, since it was freezing one day, We bought matching Harajuku girls' pink sweaters with 13 bunnies sewn onto them. I got an extra large and she got a small. We were twinsies. And guess what? We didn't need to photograph this. We just lived it and laughed it. There was no Facebook. Mother rocked her new look. It wasn't really my color. Besides for visiting some of the oldest temples in Kyoto with Mother or eating our Palette cleanser sherbet from our personal three foot high ship done tableside out of sculptured ice, we also soaked in ancient Ryokan's mud baths and then sat on tiny wooden chairs getting scrubbed by a very thorough innkeeper. I think at some point we also glimpsed the royal princess and I think she was actually holding a Starbucks coffee. But most loving is when Mother and I wanted to get fitted for kimonos. In Tokyo, old family-run kimono shops are all over. Easy to spot with kimono-clad mannequins outside. We found an old boutique that was close to the palace gardens. The owner was a smiley woman in a glamorous light purple kimono, whom I told that I wanted to be fitted with Mother. Right away, she grabbed my hand and invited us in. I'm pretty particular about mostly wearing black, whereas Mother runs down a colour wheel once in a while. So we settled on black for me and dove grey for her. When I learned that the word kimono means something that is worn, the literal meaning made me want to wear it so much more. Supposedly, there are nine types of popular kimonos. Mother was into the summer style, a yukata, the most casual style of kimono. Whereas I settled for a samurai-style kimono with an obi, which is the belt that holds it all together. Of course, fitting a kimono is a leisurely affair. A long chat about to pattern or not to pattern, to clash or not to clash, to parasol or not to parasol, and then these lashings of wisdom about which attire is appropriate for which social obligation. Apparently, I skewed towards very casual, basically living a pool party life with no umbrella. But attire is not just what you put on your body. It's about a meditation. It's about an observance. A lovely matcha tea ceremony unfolded in front of our very eyes, all forming part of this choreography. And at some point, fabrics and robes were whizzing by. And the next thing, you're standing on a tatami mat, fully garbed. Once more, we didn't have a phone or a camera to commemorate this moment. We just stood there, dressed in beauty next to each other, hugging, smiling. Mother, not one for tears, may have wiped a little droplet away at this very moment. I, of course, waterworks. So naturally I had to think, is this appropriation of culture that is not mine? Am I being offensive or insensitive? Or am I sincerely and absolutely celebrating and honouring a beautiful custom? My kimono maker told me it's all about intention. It's not the what, but the how. I explained to our maestro that I lived in America and mother lived across a very large pond and I just don't get to see her as much as I'd like to. And now mother just isn't so young anymore. We planned to put on our kimonos and call each other on Skype every week. So there we are, on different parts of the globe, chatting over a cup of tea while in our beautiful garments. Me for a morning cup, mother for an afternoon treat. And that would be our little connection in the world. Just ours, nobody else's, and no proof was necessary to know in our hearts that this really happened. Something seemingly so small and perhaps insignificant Tethering us just a little more. So let's take a breath there, and we'll be right back with my friend Holly Fry to give us a little historical context right after
0: the break. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to the Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away for murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarsella. We gotta show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f themselves. I'm Steve Fishman, and I'm Dax Devlin Ross. And this is the burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts.
1: Thanks for sticking around. Here's more of everywhere. Holly.
3: Yes, my love.
1: I'm sorry I didn't get you a kimono when I was in Japan.
3: It's okay. But
1: we weren't friends then. So <laughs> now when I return to Japan, I will bring you a kimono and we can have a friendship kimono.
3: I need you kimono. to build a time machine. Go back, get me the kimono when you got your original one or it's just not going to have any meaning.
1: Fine. <laughs> I need a minute. Get right Good on it. Bye.
3: Get right on it. I love kimono because they're beautiful. And also as someone who sews a lot... I appreciate them in maybe a different way than normal people would. Uh, but I thought we would talk a little bit about kimono and their history and then why that is relevant to your story about your mom. So uh, up until the high-end period, the kimono not so much in Japan. It was more like um, separate, you know, separates tops and bottoms <laughs> <laughs> um, or trousers or skirts. There were one-piece garments, but they weren't quite the same as we would like look at and see a kimono. And then during the high end period, which was quite long, it was from 794 to 1192, they developed during that several hundred years. And what I love about kimono and what to me is really beautiful and kind of a nice example in general of Japanese design is that unlike if you look at garments for example, that come down through the European tradition, particularly after the Middle Ages, where there's lots of tailoring. The seams are fussy. They're, They're sewn and cut so that they will mold to your body. But in Japan, the development of how they cut and make these clothes, everything is a straight line. They're just designed in pieces so beautifully that they wrap around you perfectly, and they fall perfectly, and it takes advantage of the fabric's natural beauty. Which to me is like brilliant design. That's
1: like an origami. It's
3: very much in line with the idea clothes. of origami, uh, which is why I love them. Like for a lot of people that sew, making a kimono is really fun because you can kind of really indulge in just the beauty of the fabric and you're not worried so much about like matching up seam lines and stuff. Everything has to match, of course, but it's just simpler. It's a simpler design from the the interior. But really, there's this interesting development that happens after the high end period. So the Kamakura period, which is 1192 to 1338, there's another big shift. And then the Muromachi period, I am probably pronouncing these names very terribly. So my apologies to any Japanese speakers in the audience. And at this point, kimono started getting more and more colorful. This idea of a colorful garment came in the color started to be important in terms of its symbolic meaning, like certain leaders would be associated with certain colors, so loyalty could be demonstrated by the selection of fabrics that were in your kimono. And also... um, on the battlefield, alliances were often identified by color, which isn't unusual now. I mean, even every, every nation has its military that has its uniform. So it's kind of similar to that, but these tended to be much more colorful. And so you will sometimes hear historians talk about ancient Japanese battlefields as a very, like, wild visual display of just all of these colors coming together. And then in the Edo period, things really started to become important in terms of kimono because... One, there were several developments where there were several garments that developed along with, like, the samurai tradition. And these became super important. The idea of presentation became more important than ever. The people that made kimono had to work so hard to keep up with all of the demands of, like, similarly still symbolic colors, very important. This idea of looking very perfect and wearing, like, hakama, which are the the split pant style garment. Still using this straight cut method, but because they were having to churn out garments at a really fast rate, it really became an art form. Like, people that could move very quickly. Almost like when you watch a master folder do a piece of origami, it was like that. But clothing came out at the end. Amazing. So, kimono became more important than ever in terms of being a cultural item and a status symbol and a way to really, like, telegraph to the world who you were and who you were associated with. But nowadays... Kimono are not really the day-to-day garments that they once were in Japanese culture, and they're usually worn for things like important celebrations or um, ceremonial days. But also, there has become this growing thing where they share them with travelers, and that is a new form of income for people that make clothes, which then becomes this sort of beautiful reflection. Like, I, I love that you talk in this episode about wondering whether you're appropriating culture in taking part in buying these things. But at the same time, like, that's the way that that garment had to evolve so it could stay in the public consciousness, particularly on a global scale. And I just like that it's become this item that is instantly recognizable. No one looks at a kimono and is confused about the culture it came from. So in a way, they have made, like, this garment the ambassador for their country, which I love, and I think it's really beautiful. I love that.
1: Well— I think the reappropriation thing that I was thinking about is I feel like there's a part of travel that exposes you to so many of these things where you need to go and appreciate and not take for yourself.
3: Right. And I think a lot of times people will kind of trinketize <laughs> uh, pieces trinketize. of culture where they go and they buy a thing in another country and then they come back and they wear it almost like, you know, a badge of honor. And they're like, I went to this country. I am cultured and I understand it now, which is, it gets in a weird place because their idea is that they're like, I appreciate this. And it's like, well, wait, because you're you're kind of making yourself like the ambassador of something that you don't understand and don't really have cultural ownership of. And that's where it gets a little bit tricky, right? Um, so, what is
1: the right way to do it? Like, I don't,
3: I don't know that there's one right way, right? Like, I think a lot of people grapple with this. The biggest thing I think is always important is to to listen to people from any given culture when they say, like, "Hey, that's not cool." And I I understand that the reaction, the natural reaction most people have is whether they're conscious of it or not, to be defensive and be like, "I was just trying to learn. I was just trying to appreciate it." But like, just to listen and sit with the information rather than trying to justify or, like, defend yourself in that situation. right? And again, I screw up all the time. Like, I think everybody does. It's hard not to. It's
1: about the awareness.
3: Yeah. I mean, I I think, like, it's a a good step that you you opened up that conversation with the person you were buying the kimono from and probably opened up to him a new idea that, like, you just wanted something to share with your mother. It wasn't, it's not as (laughs) though... (laughs) You're <laughs> you're wearing it around town and being like, I have been to Japan and I know the Japanese. Look at me intimately. Um,
1: no. It was a huh.
3: That's the trick, right? That people start to kind of come back. I think sometimes from travels and behave as though they, they have somehow the become naturalized citizens of right. the place that they right. went. When even if you learn about the culture through doing something like that, you can never really replicate their experience to a level of understanding, you know, that is equal to what they've lived. Right. It becomes about sensitivity as well. Like I said, just listening to other people.
1: Yeah, the kimono and my mother is a private, personal, beautiful thing we do at home in our the privacy of our own home. Right. I'm not wearing it as a representation of Japan as much as I'm wearing it as a representation of time with my mother. Exactly. The specialness of that.
3: But, yeah, you know, it's, it's always like your funny, way like, to recall that moment right, and exactly. that event in your life. And
1: this is like the thing that happens to me all the time that I laugh and think about. When I fly back from the Caribbean, there's always a bunch of people on the plane with cornrows uh-huh. that they've had to done, or sometimes Mexico too, but... The Caribbean in particular, you notice people that had had their hair done, braided or cornrowed. And I wonder whether there's a consciousness there at all. Whether you're thinking like, oh, I'm going (laughs) to get cornrows as a person that's not from wherever I've come from and do it anyway. Or am I doing it as a celebration of hair?
3: Right. Well, and it, it kind of goes back to that thing I was saying about trinketizing it, right? It's like a fast food version of culture right. where it's kind of like you didn't actually immerse yourself and learn about it. You kind of bought a look.
1: Through the drive-thru. Yeah. But then again, I'd like to be devil's advocate and look at it from maybe there's a small drop of, hey, I'm willing to learn. Like that person actually did think about it. Or well, maybe that's just bullshit. No, they just went and had their hair braided.
3: <laughs> I think in most cases, it's that. It's an Instagram photo, unfortunately. And I hope, I mean, my hope is always that, I mean, once they have had that thing done, the cow has been flung. Like, you can't un unring that bell and say that they didn't do that, especially if they've posted it on their Instagram. But it, I just always hope that it can open up a conversation or at least some self-reflection about it we all need it all the time. I mean, I like I said, I screw up all the time. Well, and it's it, the
1: willingness to admit that you screw up all the time and are willing to learn is that's the point. And yeah. travel shows you that. Like, that's the point.
3: And I think most people don't, want to trinketize anyone else's life. Like they don't realize that it's demeaning to be like, I came and enjoyed your culture and I came away with braids. Well, <laughs> I enjoyed
1: your culture so much I dyed my hair purple two weeks ago because you have purple <laughs> hair and then went to play my Mahjong competition with purple hair.
3: Yes, but I sent you the dye. Like I was an active person. You basically
1: dyed my hair <laughs> I, I don't me. think of
3: that as you appropriating my culture so much as me proselytizing the magic of purpleness.
1: And thank you. It was appreciated <laughs> only when I was in the (laughs) If I was not in the sun, no one noticed. It's just
3: red as dark, yeah. But yeah, I think as long as we're all aware that we're probably screwing up a lot and we're not trying to turn someone else's culture into a souvenir, but be really thoughtful about these things, it will go a long way to bridging that gap.
1: The whole point of this episode was to talk about the idea of leaving your smartphone behind. So... I've been grappling with this thing forever because, of course, I want a moment that's beautiful to capture it and share it with friends across the world and show them something that they haven't seen or something that I'm sharing with my mother or something I'm sharing with my husband. But at the same time, I've been like, why do I need to memorialize this moment, canonize this moment? Isn't there a beautiful idea that you could just be in the moment?
3: Ironically, like I think about these chats of ours that are being recorded, and I'm, I think, I'm so glad these will be there when I'm in my 80s and have lost some of my mental acuity and I can return to this happy time. But yeah, I mean, to me, that's a big part of it, right? It's just that it helps kind of jog your memory and take you back to that place. Like a visual is an easy way to do that. Right. So now I don't even know since phones are, you know, this ubiquitous additional appendage that, like, I mean, I'm as bad as anyone. I have it in my hand all the time. And to me, there's also that subtle difference that you have to acknowledge between capturing a moment, like stopping for a photo, versus this will be great on Insta. This will be great on Twitter. Like, and I, I don't know, right? Some of it is that yummy, yummy dopamine hit that people get from likes and comments And I don't know how you tell people not to do that because we become dependent on it.
1: So maybe it's about culling the amount of what's done, right? So my mother, who I'm with traveling all the time, she would take one photo of like an entire experience. Like she doesn't need to take hundreds of photos. She'll take one and she will actually look at that photo again, which I love about her. (laughs) She'll share it with me and be like, do you remember this incredible flower we saw in Kyoto? I We'll never forget it. And she looks at the photo and that's beautiful. So I want her to capture that and remember it. But at the same time, I mean, I think the talk about social media has been there for a long time. How do I get off? How do I spend less time? Am I less productive? Am I more productive? Like all those questions are there, but I feel like no one's given us a solution. Travel should provide that solution. Travel should encourage you to not want to do all that stuff because why would you want to Instagram this beautiful private moment for everybody else to see if you could just keep it for yourself? And that's the joy of it. I mean, some people travel. I know that there are travel companies that book specific Instagram-worthy trips.
3: Yeah. So this gets into a, a slightly deeper conversation, right, about what people are actually getting from social media. Like I mentioned the yummy, yummy dopamine hit, but on a more intense and to me slightly frightening level is validation and identity. Right, Right, like people are not feeling validated in their day-to-day lives, and there's not a sense of worth if people are not acknowledging how great you are all the time, which is problematic. And hopefully, like, people can self-validate, but that's not the culture we're in right now. So I feel like we have to figure out a way to address this almost like a global mental health issue that needs to be discussed. Like, why do people feel... Invalidated and that their identity is defined by the reactions of others, that somebody has to tell you you're having an amazing time aren't you I'm always having an amazing time me
1: too well, I think about travel in that respect, like I think about these moments in like Florianopolis in the southern part of Brazil, where I was single, I had no responsibilities, I had this sort of strange moment between Lives where I was just sitting on this beach by myself, and I didn't need to photograph it, to tell anyone about it. And travel shows you all of that all the time. Like, I'm going to Africa and there's no service, and I worry about it because I have to work or have stuff to do. And then I start thinking, "Wait, this is such a beautiful opportunity to just be in Africa. Why do I need to take a photo of the big five? I just need to be with the big five.
3: Well, my thing is always that people have already taken photographs of almost any important spot in the world way better than I would ever manage. So, I can just look at those. I (laughs) have
1: seen your photographic ability. It's perfectly acceptable. (laughs) Mine, however, (laughs) terrible. So, my real reason for not taking photos is because I'm terrible at taking photos. Because
3: it would challenge your identity and your self-validation. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Oh, my God. Thanks, Holly, for hanging out with me today. Always. Ella is so happy you're here.
3: I'm always happy to hang out with Ella. She's like the best non-speaking co-host on the planet.
1: Ella. No. Nope. She's not moving. Nothing.
3: Her podcast is not gonna take off because she just doesn't have the gumption to keep it going.
1: She's more interested in napping. <laughs> She's like, I need a nap. Daddy. Coming soon. I need a 30
3: nap. minutes of dog snores. This
1: is a great moment for us to travel once again to Advertising Land. We'll be right back with more everywhere.
0: Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to the Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop, like Detective Louis Scarcella putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away for murder by Detective Scarsella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And The law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers. Started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. It's Garcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. Trade tables up.
1: You're returning to Everywhere Land. To me, Broadway really is one of the last art forms, untainted by social media. It exists for you in a moment alone, created by the artists right in front of your face. Anais Mitchell, the writer and music creator of Broadway's hit Hadestown is with me in studio. Thank you for spending a little time with me on a summer Friday. It's hot and blazing in New York. Let's start by telling about your childhood and traveling around.
4: Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in Vermont. My parents were like back to the land or hippies that had grown up in the suburbs. And then they they hitchhiked to California for the summer of love and they... They read about how everyone should buy a farm in Vermont in the whole earth catalog. And so that's what they did. And I lived there on a sheep farm with my parents and my grandparents were also on that same farm in a different house. And um, my granddad was involved in solar energy research. And after he was retired, he did a lot of traveling to do um, kind of consulting in different places. And I remember my, my grandparents taking off to go to China or the Middle East and then coming back with like a present for me. So travel was always like a, a value in our family. I remember my, my mom saying that things that was okay to spend money on were food, books, your friends, and travel. So there was a lot of shipping me off to different places when I was a kid and I came to love it for travel in its own right. you know. And, and then when I became a singer-songwriter, that has sort of supplanted my travel life as usually I'm, I'm traveling for a gig now. And I sort of miss those days of just being somewhere for the sake of being there.
1: Right. Well, so much of it is business travel, right? Tell me what you think the difference is. Like, is there an attitude difference or is it like just a feeling difference?
4: Totally. And I think like I've done different kinds of traveling for music. And sometimes I'm like opening for a band and they have a tour bus and I'm just kind of rolling with them and there's somebody taking care of all the details and there's no reason why you would have a conversation with someone on the street. You know, you're sort of in a bubble in that scenario. And then I've also done, you know, just me on a train or on a bus where you're staying with friends. But I think the difference for me is probably that if I'm touring at some level, I end up being concerned about protecting my own energy, kind of just looking out for my, my own energy and my own space so that I can get in the space to perform.
0: Right. And
4: that's maybe just a perception I have. Like, I, I think I need to do that. But I think if you're really just traveling to travel you're more like porous, right? <laughs> like there's fewer boundaries around your, your psyche.
1: But that leads us perfectly into talking about the idea of thou shall ignore your smartphone, mm. right? Like as a singer, songwriter, someone who's just done this thing on Broadway, the concept of people having to always record that must be frustrating. And I'm sure there's a part of you that's like. Put this down, be in the moment, be with me in the moment. Because I've done that. I lock the world out in order to create this thing. Come and experience it like that.
4: Mm. I have so many thoughts and feelings about that stuff. Like yeah, I mean, I remember before those phones, you know, I remember touring before the phones. And um, I remember so many times just being alone in a car, driving, you know, some impossible distance in the United States to get to some like folk music club where I was gonna play a gig and seeing something stunningly beautiful and not being able to tell anyone about it. And uh, what it does kind of in your heart when it has a minute, you know, when you have a minute with that stuff, I think there's like, we're kind of spilling the sap all the time with these phones and we're not able to um, let them distill into the syrup that they could, this is a Vermont reference for you, um, that they could become if you just sort of, live with the beauty, you know, in the moment. And certainly in the case of performing, I think, and with music and theater, it's all about humans in a room together in that moment. And you just can't be together if you have one eye on the device. I did when I was it, between London and, and Broadway. You know, the show has been in development for 13 years. And I had like three months between London and Broadway to make all these changes that we collectively felt should be made to the script and the songs. And I was like, I got to get off my phone. So I bought a dumb phone that I could take to my writing place so I could maybe contact my, my husband or my manager if something crazy happened, but that no one else could be in touch. And it was amazing to me to reconnect with what it feels like to live in the world without those devices. And uh, I think the main thing is, you know, for most people it's like probably 80% of my involvement on those sites is like, what do people think about what I said? <laughs> you know, as opposed to like, what is happening with my friend? Which was really eye-opening and uh, I don't want to live like that, you know. Who the fuck does? Right.
1: I think we're being forced to live like that because we think that it's okay. It's not okay. Life is happening right now in front of you, and you don't have to tell anyone about it. Yes. But isn't Broadway kind of an almost sacred place for this, where people are still off their phones, where people, very few people, unlike a concert, Broadway holds this like almost a good manner or like a politeness, like I'm not going to be on my phone.
4: Mm -hmm, Even mm -hmm.
1: though they have to say it in the beginning, Mm
0: -hmm.
4: I feel like
1: people adhere to it.
4: I agree. I mean, I think the culture is just very strong in that way. And I mean, it's true at, at a music show, too. It's not that cool to pull out your phone and, you know, be on it. But it, on Broadway, especially, I mean, people are paying so much for those tickets, right? And they're there to lose themselves in a story. And like, how are you going to do that if your neighbor has like a screen out?
1: Let's talk about the ultimate journey. That's how I see Hadestown. Like, I think about it in that way. To the underworld, the ultimate journey. Like, mm-hmm. how was that for you? People come from all over the world to see Broadway, and they want to go on that journey mm. alongside with you and the stars on the stage.
4: Mm. Yeah, they want to go with Andre de Shields, <laughs> who's playing the character of Hermes, and in this telling of the Orpheus. And Eurydice story, Hermes, is he's something like a train conductor, right? The very first lines of the show are, you know, once upon a time there was a railroad line, don't ask where, don't ask when. It was the road to hell. It was hard times. And Andre is just such a consummate showman, you know, so warm and welcoming. And I think people do get a sense when he comes out there that they have a guide that they can trust who's going to take them on a journey. He's such an eloquent man. I don't know if you've heard any of his interviews, but he talks about, like, making a contract with the audience that we welcome you on this journey with us. You might be challenged but you won't be harmed. Like there's just some sort of extension of his hand that feels very present throughout the show. It's a strange piece. It's, you know, it does have this above-ground world and this below-ground world, and the above-ground world is a kind of unpredictable place. The, the weather systems are unpredictable. Um, there's poverty and hunger and heat and cold. And then Town or the underworld represents this place of relative security, an industrial world, underground it's walled in it's all very metaphorical right like there's not a lot about the show that's literal and so i think the designers have done just such a beautiful job of being able to take us on that journey in terms of the change that happens to the set when you travel underground it's sort of a sleight of hand move on the part of rachel chavkin and rachel Halk, our our director and scenic designer
1: amazing Give me something about your personal journey that you went through with this production.
4: Mm-hmm. So it's been 13 years. Um, yeah, which is it's a like,
1: lifetime, really.
4: Yeah, a third of my life, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah, literally. When it began, it was so I was living in Vermont and it was this DIY community theater project. It was me and a bunch of friends. We traveled around Vermont in this school bus that was painted silver and it had all of our sets and props in it. It was an impossible thing that we did. Like, we, we had two weeks of rehearsal or something and a couple thousand dollars to make this thing happen, and and we did. Like, I remember this one moment we were loading the sets in from the bus into this one of these places we were going to do the show, and um, I was carrying together with the director and this other friend like these very heavy set pieces. They were so heavy, and they didn't feel heavy. You know, they felt light to me. This is going to sound pretentious. I, mean, I never would, like, quote Shakespeare ever, but, you know, there's this moment in... Um, Romeo and Juliet, where they're like, how did you get over the wall to Juliet's house? And Romeo goes, on Love's Light Wings, did I ever perch these walls? And I felt like, oh, this is Love's Light Wings. And that that has been present in this show many different times, you know, um, and it had to do with the people coming together to, to make it happen. So after we did it in Vermont, we did a concert version of the show. I made an album with some guest singers, and then we would tour around and present the show as a concert So no staging, no props, no costumes. I would kind of talk about what was happening between the songs. And we had like 14 people and a dog in a 15-passenger van. It was a really wild time And, and always on a shoestring. And, you know, but it felt the same. Like people were coming together to make this thing happen. And then I met Rachel Chavkin in 2012 and started to work with her and started to work on what has become this Broadway production. And it's been a masterclass for me in terms of taking this piece that came really out of the wild woods and you know the music world essentially it had a lot of the, a lot of the logic the sort of emotional logic of the show is musical and so trying to mesh that with the world of dramaturgy and you know what people are expecting when they're paying a a theater ticket and wanting to be led through a story from a to b and so that again was a phase of 6 years and and we did off-Broadway, we did Edmonton, we did London and then we finally arrived at the Kerr and I don't know what's next. You know, it does feel like we're sort of on we're on a train and it and it just keeps rolling and it's bigger than me and it's bigger than any of us that have been working on it.
1: Maybe the train is to everywhere.
4: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: Um, let's talk about New York as a destination. That's okay. like the final thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Like people come from all over the world and there's a kind of responsibility to create something for Broadway. You're taking on a responsibility because New York is that place. And I think that as someone who performs here or has a business here or in any of those ways, you like representing New York. And that is so crucial to me because it's the center of the universe.
4: I I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you. I, um, you know, I grew up in a very rural place and um, New York was always my like dream city. You know, it took a long time before I got here. But it wasn't necessarily Broadway that was the draw for me. You know, I I sort of my romantic notions about New York are like the Chelsea Hotel and, you know, the, the folk scene in the village in the 60s and like Patti Smith and Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen and that type of stuff. But then, you know, there are so many scenes going on in New York. And once I tapped into Broadway and, you know, to be working on this show on Broadway and to be rehearsing at like New 42nd Street Studios and there's like the Tootsie guys were upstairs and, you know, my Oklahoma friends were at the bar like after hours. It does just feel like such a beautiful camaraderie of artists in this city. And, you know, whatever the scene is, if it's folk music, if it's Broadway, if it's jazz, you know, there's so many worlds so yeah, I feel like it's just a tremendous privilege to live in this town. And, and to be a representative of the art scene here, It's that's beyond my wildest dreams. You know, I'm just happy to be in town. You know, this is like not a funny story, but I just thought it was interesting in the context of like what different ways you can travel. And when I was 18, there was a bus ticket you could get. It was a Greyhound bus ticket that you could take any bus in the USA for a month. And I got that ticket and I did it by myself. It was such a glorious, you know, just me. I was 18. I was reading like Kerouac or something. (laughs) Just like on a Greyhound bus, you know, overnight, wake up in San Francisco or like Knoxville, Tennessee or New Orleans and get out the bus station, meet some random people. It was a pretty formative experience for me.
1: That is what I'd like to inspire. I hope you and your voice today inspires people to go and do that. It's not necessarily Greyhound, Delta's available, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> yes.
4: Megabus, Megabus, yeah. Or whatever. Or bus.
1: Peter Pan is the one, right? I always see it like rushing up Fifth Avenue. <laughs> um, but I want to inspire people to take those journeys, to not fear. Take pepper spray with you if you must, uh-huh. or like... Whatever it is. But like, why are we in a fearful state to do that stuff now? Yeah. I mean, I understand that bad things happen everywhere and all the time. Yes, yeah. But she wants your attention. Oh, hi. Ella's in studio with us again today. No one's paying attention to her. (laughs) It's not about you today, Ella. But really just take those journeys. Like, get on a bus. Go somewhere wild. And instead of thinking about it, just feeling it, Mm -hmm. right? That's the whole show two seasons of this Mm -hmm. for the next year. This is all I'm going to be talking about. That's
4: amazing. I love that. And it's so true that, you know, to be on the ground someplace is so completely different from reading about it in the news or, you know, whatever sense people have about a place from outside. And I know, you know, you were talking about Cairo. And when I was in college, I studied abroad in Cairo. And I did some traveling in the Middle East. And I remember, you know, you read the, what is the stuff that the government puts out about, don't go to Lebanon or (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this
1: <stuff>. Propaganda.
4: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then and then on the ground in any of these places, even a place that where there is a war or violence, and I, I haven't been in a, uh, a country like that, but the, there are people. You know, there's people everywhere, and there's little kids like playing in the street, and they're going to school, and there's people trying to sell you a piece of fruit. You know, there's just people everywhere.
1: That is what the show is about. It's about finding the humanity and showing that there's humanity everywhere. Like we need to stop the idea of the Middle East or scary Africa or however these horrible tropes that are out there, because none of that stuff truly exists. The world is open. I'm with you. Well, thank you for being with me and spending a little time with me.
4: Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. You are
1: so wonderful. Anais has me inspired to completely forget that I even have a phone. And that is the power of art. So let's take the advice from Mother. One photo, that's all you need. So I have a plane to catch. But if you'd still like to reach us, go to Everywhere Podcast on Instagram, Everywhere Pod on Twitter, or the website at everywherepodcast.com. Of course, I couldn't have done any of this Without my executive producers, Christopher Hasiotis, and the loveliest of lovely, Holly Fry, A big thank you to my lead producer and editor, Chandler Mays, and also co-editor and creator of the soundtrack, Tristan McNeil. I am your host, Daniel Scheffler. And as I'd like to say, good boys go to heaven, and bad boys are everywhere.